Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. So here we are. We're doing just a short episode here on a reader's guide to a few different books. And this one is The Sound and the Fury. So The Sound and the Fury, as we mentioned briefly, is a kind of tragic story that's told over Easter weekend in 1928. It's centered around the Compson family, a once aristocratic family in the South, now in steep decline. The story itself is told in four long chapters, three of which are told by uh, siblings of the Compson family. Some keys to reading this book, it might be helpful to know the values of the Southern aristocracy in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, This is a kind of complex time in history, but generally speaking, the families were expected to be moral exemplars in their community. The men were supposed to protect the women and particularly their kind of premarital purity. Uh, The women themselves were supposed to practice this purity until they got married, in which case they were supposed to uh, raise children uh, faithfully, dote on them carefully. Uh, And they were supposed to treat their previously enslaved Uh, workers, servants with respect and some kind of dignity after the war. If you can hold those values at the front of your mind as you're reading this, you'll see the Compsons in many ways falling uh, quite short of those values. Um, And that is an indicator that Faulkner is giving us about their decline in this uh, time period. It may also be helpful to know about the psychological context of the day. Uh, We have diagnostic manuals that were published in the early 20th century. Uh, There's one famous one in particular, um, Edmund Burke Huey published Backward and Feeble-Minded Children in 1912. And uh, the words idiot, imbecile, and moron were given clinical significance. And so if, for example, you had an adult person or somebody who was maturing, whose mental and cognitive capacity was not uh, above that of a two-year-old, they were clinically diagnosed as an idiot. And so as we think about the title of our story, uh, which comes from Macbeth, you've got this, uh, to, to quote from Macbeth, it's a tale that's told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And it just so happens that our first narrator, in some ways, in the 1920s, when this book is written, would fit the clinical definition of an idiot who is telling a story that may or may not be filled with sound and fury. And maybe a question to think about is, what does it signify, if anything? Uh, where does this tragedy lead us. So uh, questions um, to ask, and this would also be a helpful guide to your reading is ask in the first chapter who the caretakers of Benji are. If you're trying to keep track of the timelines, that's the best hint I can give you. There are three caretakers and each one is associated with a kind of different time in Benji's life. So if you can keep those caretakers straight, Versh, Luster, and TP, uh, you will have a much easier time reading. Other questions. What are the narrators doing? Remember that the responsibility of narrators is to report, interpret, and evaluate. So ask them what they're doing. You'll find at times that the narrator's reliability and what you think of them can be shaped by whether or not they take up one of those responsibilities and how they pursue those things. Uh, And then finally, how is the text being manipulated to reflect the psychological state of the narrator? One thing I didn't mention is that Faulkner plays with the actual typeset itself. So there are line breaks and punctuation choices, capital letters, misspellings that are all intentional, meant to say something about the character's psychological state or their own values. And sometimes it is very revealing. Sometimes it's obscure. Sometimes it is funny, even when you get to uh, one of the chapters later on. So just pay attention to how the text is being manipulated. It is difficult work, but being invited into the mind of a broken person is 
pretty difficult, I would imagine. And this story, uh, I think, pays off in a lot of ways if you stick with it. So I would encourage that. This book, because of its kind of broken narration at times, is difficult to find a part. But this is how chapter two opens. Um, and this is the kind of internal uh, thoughts of one of the, the sons um, in the Compson family. He thinks, when the shadow of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between seven and eight o'clock. And then I was in time again, hearing the watch. It was grandfather's. And when father gave it to me, he said, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. It's rather excruciatingly apt that you will use it to gain the reducto absurdum of all human experience, which can fit your individual needs no better than it fitted his or his father's. I give it to you not that you may remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment and not spend all your breath trying to conquer it. Because no battle is ever won, he said. They're never even fought. The field only reveals to man his own folly and despair, and victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, reach out to the Advancement Office. Check out our website and schedule a tour at cambridgeclassical.org. Until next time, think well, love rightly, and live wisely.